0: giving us a history of America and the Protestant Church, Jamar Tisby had given us a survey of ourselves, the racial meanings and stratagems that define our negotiations with one another. He points courageously toward the open source of racism, not with the resigned pessimism of the defeated, but with the resonant hope of Christian faith. The reader will have their minds and hearts pricked as they consider just how complicit the church has been in America's original sin, how we get word complicit is for describing the actions and inactions of those who claim the name of Christ. That is to be, any, to be the Tabidi Anna a pastor at uh, Anacostia River Church in Washington, DC. He wrote that uh, small fort to the uh, this book I'm gonna go over for the next four or five episodes called uh, a called A Compromise by Jamar Tisby. <laughs> Here is uh, Eugene Scott. In The Color of Compromise, Tisby reveals the role that racism has played in the American Church and how that has manifested in policymaking. Those following the relationship between right evangelicals and President Trump need to know that this nation, this union, was a long time coming. Even before the rise of the moral majority led in part by the late Jerry Farwell, the father of one of Trump's most vocal evangelical supporters, Jerry Farwell Jr., book gives the historical context that is often missing from the conversation about how so many black and white Christians can be described as theologically conservative with vote so differently on election day. Compromise helps the reader understand that Martin Luther King Jr.'s assessment that Sunday morning is the most racially divided hour in America rings true today and manifests in the voting booths when Christians express their deeply held convictions. That is Eugene Scott, who writes for The Fix for the Washington Post. And last but not least, The Color of Compromise presents an unbefutable and haunting historical survey of white evangelical churches' complicity with racism and white supremacy. Tisby invites the reader to answer this question What is the color of compromise? The answer is red, politically and literally. As the blood of black women and men slain by the wickedness of white supremacy and anti black racism, vis a vis the altered complicity continues to pull out. Kamini Yuan, public theologian. And you are once again tuning into the Kick It Straight podcast with Jermaine. You know how I do it, I don't hold back, I just tell it the way it is. I give you my viewpoint, my opinion. Uh, Some of them going to be very um, foundational. Uh, I think it's very important that as black people, all people, who want to consider themselves any kind of intelligence to cultivate some kind of reading life. I often tell people, if you haven't read and soaked up some of the words of past scholars, I know what your opinions are. It's just going to be emotional truffles. There's going to be nothing of substance. And those who know me know I'm a I'm a reader. I read across the board. Even if I don't like the subject, even if I don't even like the author slant, I'm going to still read it because I believe there may be something in the words that I can pick up on. So one of the books I found very interesting was a book was this book by Jamar Tisby, The Color of Compromise. Um, the bibliography itself was worth the price of the book. But if any of you will get the book, maybe you will see just how great I think this book is. And I will be quoting you some of highlight the highlighted passages of it and comment, commenting on those passages. Um, he started off the book in chapter 1 talking about September 15, 1963 that was a day it was a youth day service at the 16th street baptist church in Birmingham Alabama and that was where that church was bombed <clears throat> while them girls uh, was getting ready for um, to go to church service they was downstairs getting ready after the, the uh, in uh, Bible study and, uh, we've all seen some of those images they play those images Whenever King's birthday come around And the birth of the Civil Rights They do documentaries Well um, A few days Before the funeral There's a guy by the name of Charles Morgan Jr. White guy He was the head of the Young Men's Business Club And he had A meeting with his business club people And Reflecting on the events This he says Who did it? Who threw that bomb? Was it a Negro or a white? The answer should be, we all did it. Every last one of us is condemned for that crime and the bombing before it and a decade ago. We all did it. Morgan, end quote, Morgan recognized that no matter who had physically planted the dynamite, all the city's white residents were complicit in allowing the environment of hatred and racism to persist. Then Morgan continued, the who is very little individual who talks about the niggers and spreads the seeds of hate to his neighbor and his sons. The jokester, the crude old whose racial jokes rock the party with laughter. End quote. Here's what Tibby says. Morgan also recognized that Christians bore as much responsibility as anyone for the state of race relations in the city. It is all the Christians and all the ministers who spoke too late in anguish cries against violence. Then asked a series of rhetorical questions for his listeners to ponder. Did those ministers visit the families of the Negroes in the hour of travail? Did many of them go to the homes of their brothers and express their regrets in person or pray with crying relatives? Do they admit Negro into their ranks at the church? End quote. Tisby goes on to say the failure of many Christians in the South and across the nation so decisively opposed to racism in their families, communities, and even their own churches provide fertile soil for the seeds of hatred to grow. The refusal to act in the midst of injustice is itself an act of injustice. Indifference to oppression perpetuates oppression. History and Scripture teaches us that there can be no reconciliation without repentance. There can be no repentance without confession, and there can be no confession without the truth. I just want to stop right here. Um, that last statement: there can be no repentance without confession, and there can be no confession without the truth. Uh, it's very interesting to me that the evangelical church Christians, so-called, love the Bible as being the Word of God. But yet they have a linear experience When it comes to Confession and truth They only look at the Confession and truth aspect Of the evangelical life when it comes to An individual Being saved You know, Confessing his sins Agreeing with the Lord Jesus Christ That he's a sinner on his way to hell And he needs Jesus' blood to cover his sins And it stops there Very few White <clears throat> evangelical Christians have the mind, the heart, or the soul to look at forgiveness from the cross and apply it to oppression. Now, let me explain, say something right now. Some white person who listens to this podcast, or some spineless Negro who listens to this podcast, who was into the arena of deflecting is going to say, Well, black folk aren't the only ones who's been oppressed. I know that, Sherlock. This is the point. I'm not dealing with other people's oppression, I'm dealing with the American black folk oppression from white evangelicals because there is no sharper racial divide in this country than the black white divide. And there is no divide that's getting wider. Than the black-white divide. Now, maybe in later weeks, I will go into detail more about other racial-white divides. But no divide has come close, maybe to the American Native Americans. But white people really don't think about them too much. The Native Americans are the ones always trying to get white people to love them. Native Americans aren't always trying to join white churches where niggas aren't wanted Uh, Native Americans aren't the ones who had to have a civil rights movement Native Americans uh, aren't the ones who are always trying to prove to white people that they are different than the propaganda and the racist mass media and different from the black folk that you hear about that do Uh, act evil and commit crimes and then the whole race gets labeled you see Uh, what happens a lot of times is when the evangelical church refuses to take a collective stand on an issue normally that issue is going to outgrow the evangelical church and what I mean by this for instance the evangelical church Spineless as they were Did not take a collective stand against abortion So When Roe versus. Wade came up In 73 The evangelical church Or the church at large Did not have a collective voice So they didn't have enough collective power To put on their supreme court To not allow abortion So now today the church is split Over abortion In huge sums In huge numbers same thing with racism and integration and segregation and Black Lives Matter. The church is split. And the church has had a very, um, like you say, complicit history with racism. Uh, so when Jamal TV talks about confession, repentance, and truth, the question is always asked and it should be asked by white people should they have to repent of what their 4 generation grandfathers did and grandmothers did to me the answer would be a resounding no you should not have to repent because of what your grandfathers did but you do and you should repent of the fact that have benefited in a privileged society, in a privileged church, because of what your grandfathers did. And the repentance is to acknowledge that atmosphere was set up because of what previously happened, and also repent from those white people. And there are some, because I know some, I have went to church with some, who hold very evil. Or very bad, and sometimes even very snarky, conservative thoughts and feelings about black folk. That comes out of the seed bed of what has happened in the past. You see, when people say stuff like when people say stuff like uh, African Americans should get over slavery, that tells me all I need to know about you that tells me all I need to know about you that even tells me I have the right to call in to question your so called salvation Uh, I remember that Edmund Burke once said the only thing that needs to happen for evil to prevail is for the silence of good men for so many you had so many in the church who were good men and they were silent. So slavery grew, civil rights grew, oppression grew, Jim Crow grew. Okay. Um, Jamal Tidby goes on to say white men and women have used tools like money, politics, and terrorism to consolidate their power and protect their comfort at the expense of black people. Christians participated in this system of white supremacy, a concept that identifies with white people and white culture as normal and superior, even if they claim people of color as their brothers and sisters in Christ. A, and I've, I've seen this at two Bible colleges. I witnessed this for myself at a few churches. Um, as historian Curlin DePont describes it, not only did white Christians fail to fight for black equality, they often labored mightily against it. End quote. Complicity connotes a degree of passivity as if Christianity were merely a boat languidly floating down the river of racism. In reality, white Christians have often been the current whipping racism into ways of conflict that rock and divide the people of God even if only a small portion of Christians committed the most notorious acts of racism many more white Christians can be described as complicit in creating and sustaining a racist society end quote from Jamal Tisby let me explain something to you Christian complicity in racism and injustice was so evident to me when Tavon Martin was killed I didn't think I would be in a perfect world in a common sense world where common sense is very not common I was thinking and I told some friends of mine that there's going to be no white person who thinks Tavon should have been murdered and there's not going to be no white person who thought that George Zimmerman should be set free I was so wrong there were so many churches White churches who had huge platforms, and I mean huge social media platforms at that time and still do, but you have huge churches, three, four, five, even 10,000 member churches. And some churches have a good percentage of black folk in them. But yet when Tavon Martin was murdered and the string of black men in the last two to three years of Obama's presidency popped off. These churches remain quiet. These preachers remain quiet. So, this way, the complicity still reigns today. When you have the black church crying out about oppression, crying out about police brutality, crying out about mass incarceration, crying out about gentrification, crying out about blacks not having access to white banks, you have the black church crying out about that. But the white church saying, just shut up and preach the gospel, that's why this country can never, ever be a racial kumbaya, huge moment. It's never going to happen. We kind of had it when 9-11 took place. But when 9-11 took place, that was not about black and white. That was about, we must unite as so-called patriotic Americans. And some white pastors would say, well, we are called to preach the gospel. And I would say, what other gospel issue, except for abortion or whatever, could be so near and dear in the present than the abject, blatant oppression of the people that you say you want to evangelize, that you say you want to save, and that you say you want to make your church an atmosphere that can come and feel comfortable in your church. When you say that, it's very hypocritical, white Christians. When white Christians say stuff like that to me, that racism and racial problems are not gospel problems, that tells me all I need to know about you. I, and I and I gotten to the point now. I don't even get upset no more. And I tell my black Christian friends. You have to put white evangelical Christians in a certain lens. And if you don't put them in that lens, you can get kind of hateful with them. So, when you understand that the complicity of racism has not stopped, it's just changed vehicles. It's not as blatant as it used to be, but now it's just very conservative and very quiet. And that's what this whole book by Jamar Tisby is going uh, going forward here. On page 18, he says, Jamar Tisby says, widely recognized people such as George Whitfield and Billy Graham are highlighted not because their voices matter most, but because their stances represent larger cultural trends. And he goes on to say, things could have been different at several points in American history. The colonial era, reconstruction, the them Crow. Christians could have confronted racism instead of compromising however they took the compromising role he said all that he had to need to say then on page 19 he quotes Martin Luther King Jr. and Martin Luther King Jr. said there can be no deep disappointment where there is no deep love end quote he says this study is not about discrediting the church or Christians I love the church my concern for the church and for the well-being of its people motivates my exploration of Christian complicity in racism. The goal is to build up the body of Christ by speaking the truth in love. Even if that truth comes at the price of pain, the church has not always and uniformly been complicit with racism. The same Bible that racists misuse to support slavery and segregation is the one abolitionists and civil rights activists rightly used to animate their resistance. Whenever there has been racial injustice, there has been Christians who fought against it in the name of Jesus Christ. Christianity has an inspiring history of working for racial equity and the dignity of all people, a history that should never be overlooked. Then he goes on to state the black church in particular has always been a bulwark against bigotry. Forced in the fires of racial prejudice, the black church emerged as the ark of safety for people of African descent. Preachers and leaders in the church saw the truth of the gospel message even as slaveholders and white supremacists distorted the message to make more obedient slaves. Black churches looked to the exodus of the Hebrews from Egypt as a model for their own exodus from American slavery. Black Christians saw in Scripture a God who sits high and looks low, one who saw their oppression and was outraged by it. Through the centuries, black people have become the most religious demographic in the United States. For instance, of black people say they believe in God, and with absolute certainty compared to 59% of Hispanics, 61% of whites. Additionally, 75% of blacks say religion is very important to them, compared with 59% of Hispanics and 49% of whites. Through the religious heritage, black people have passed on tradition traditional struggle, liberation, and rejoicing to every generation. Black Christians have played a vital role in shaping the history of America they have much to share with the church universal. Then he goes on to say talking about the book again. The people who will reject this book will level several common objections. What stands out about these complaints is not their originality or persuasiveness but their ubiquity throughout history. The same arguments that perpetrated racial inequality in decades past gets recycled in the present day. Critics will assert that the ideas and the color of compromise should be disregarded because they are too liberal. They will claim that a Marxist-Communist ideology underlines all the talk about racial equality. They will contend that such an extended discussion of racism reduces black people to a state of helplessness and a victim mentality. They will try to point to an over examples to say that racists do not represent the real American church. They will assert that the historical facts are wrong or have been misrepresented. They will charge that this discussion of race is somehow abandoning the gospel and replacing it with a problematic cause for social justice. After reading just a few chapters, these arguments will sound familiar. These arguments have been used to the American church's history to deny or defend racism. Other books will pointingly respond to the ways people attempt to explain away and defect claims of racism. In this book, the stories themselves tell us of tell racial oppression It is up to the reader to determine whether the rate of historical evidence proves that the American church has been complicit with racism. Let me stop right there. Um, It's very interesting to me that sometimes people get to the point, especially Christians, like Tisby was just saying, how they want to deflect. But this is my question. Black to black, white, Spanish, whoever. How can you deflect and deny a problem which has historical evidence behind it and again historical documented evidence is very uh, juxtaposed to someone's emotional meanderings it's different from someone just sitting in a park drinking some beer eating burgers and just ranting about a headline we're talking about documented historical <clears throat> evidence. And we're talking about a litany where it was black scholars and white scholars, historians, uh, excavationists who uncovered this abuse and the complicity of the church. It's always fascinating that the people say they are the most saved and the most intelligent want to be the most blind to ongoing problem uh, he talks about Revelation 79 which says after this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one couldn't count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before the land we have yet to reach Revelation 79 and we have yet to think that that is actually going to take place this uh, the thing what we do here on earth as a church is a foretelling or foreshadow I guess you can say it of how we think it's going to be in heaven I really believe that some white Christians even today are hoping for a gentrified heaven they are hoping that when they die that you will have Negroes in one spot whites in another spot but however Revelation 79 says something totally different okay in chapter 2 Jamal starts are talking about the Virginia General Assembly made up of, of Anglican men have been compelled by public pressure to address whether baptism rendered slaves free whew So, plantation owners discouraged the enslaved from hearing the Christian gospel and receiving the sacrament of baptism. They did not want to lose their unpaid labor and diminish their profits. At the same time, missionaries exerted pressure on the slave owners to evangelize their slaves. Very interesting. Centuries earlier, the Scandinavians made landfall on the northern Atlantic coast in a failed colonization project. Instead, Columbus' arrival represented the beginning of an era of European colonization domination, motivated by profit and predicated on unpaid labor. Through the development of the idea of race, we cried the intentional actions of people in the social, political, and religious spears to decide that skin color determined who would be enslaved and who would be free. Over time, Europeans, including Christians, wrote the laws and formed the habits that concentrated power in the hands of those they considered white, while withholding equality from those they considered black. Mm-hmm. During his first voyage, Columbus wrote the indigenous inhabitants should be good servants and intelligent for I observed that they quickly took in what was said to them, and I believed that they would easily be made Christians, as it appeared to me that they had no religion. To Columbus and his followers, the people they encountered would make good servants. Indigenous people were not considered intellectual or social equals, but were valued based on their ability to do the will of Europeans. For instance, historian Richard White, Refers to the middle ground between cultures when whites could neither dictate to Indians nor ignore them. Native Americans often resisted encroachment upon their lands through diplomacy and warfare, but vulnerability to European pathogens, frequent betrayal, and constant warfare decimated the indigenous American population. Slowly, Europeans established towns and cities they began raising crops and families in turn European countries demanded more raw materials from their colonies to meet the growing European demands the North American colonizers increasingly turned to slavery and where was the church's voice in this now he starts to talk about the middle passage Over the next 300 years, the transatlantic slave trade transported more than 10 million Africans to the Americas in a forced migration of epic scale. About 2 million people perished on the voyage. The human cost in terms of suffering and dignity and death caused by this commerce can never be fully comprehended, but the experience is often misunderstood or downplayed in the present day. The appalling nature of Christian or cooperation with slavery cannot be understood apart from a description of bondage and its effects on the Africans. That's the The process of enslavement began with the European desire for products that needed raw materials from the Americas. Ships would sail from England, France, Spain, Portugal, and other nations to the western coast of Africa. There, the Europeans would either barter with local African tribes for slaves captured in war common practice at the time or kidnap their own slaves okay and slavers marched their captors sometimes hundreds of miles to the western coast of Africa the slaves were tied together or had their necks clamped with wooden yokes many died of starvation or exhaustion some committed suicide along the way those who survived were taken to structures called factories these was fortress like facilities designed to hold African slaves until they were loaded onto ships Slave traders separated family and tribes so the Africans could not band together and rebel. Finally, sometimes after months of waiting, the slaves shuffled into ships called slavers, bound for Americas. It normally took two or three months to cross the Atlantic, but for one journey, lasted up for six months. By the equino uh, Aquilodio. In 1789, who was a former slave, published The Interesting Narrative and in Life of Aquita Aquino. And in this book, which I read because it's been updated, of course, like Herod Tubman's and Frederick Douglass, Richard Washington's accounts of slavery, he goes into great detail about the Middle Passage that he suffered and his family's travails from slavery. And this is what he wrote. Ecarino described the heat, smell, and human waste that accompanied slaves as they languished below deck. The stench of the hole while we were on the coast was so intolerably loathsome that it was dangerous to remain there for any time, he continued. This reduced copious perspirations from a variety of loathsome smells and brought on a sickness among the slaves of which many died. Finally, he told of the tubs which held human excrement into which the children often fell and were almost suffocated. By the time he wrote his autobiography, Equino had converted to Christianity. As he reflected on his life, he viewed his experience through the lens of his faith and commenced on the hypocrisy of slave traders who claimed to be Christian. Recollecting on the repeated rape of African women by the slave traders aboard the ship, Equino wrote that it was a disgrace not only of Christians but of men. I have seen them to gratify their brutal passions with females not yet ten years old. Um, and before I end um, these depredations occurred before the slaves had even arrived in the Americas the inhumanity of bondage began as soon as kidnapped snatched the Africans from their tribes and most often the cruelty continued until the Africans death unless one happened to secure freedom no matter who you are in America you've heard the song Amazing Grace It's been sung at football games, basketball games. It's sung at church services at least once a month. Well, here's the story behind Amazing Grace. John Newton, born in England, 1725, is best known for pinning the hymn Amazing Grace. And his life is remembered as a story of redemption. A lifelong sailor, Newton served as a captain of a slave ship for a time. He marks March the 10th, 1748, as his Christian conversion did not stop his involvement in the transatlantic slave trade immediately however he continued slaving until he suffered a major stroke in 1754 and retired from the sea after years of waiting and several attempts with different denominations Newton was finally ordained and an Angelican priest in 1764 became famous for his ministry at the church at Albany. more than three decades after he retired from southern Newton wrote a pamphlet called thoughts upon the African slave trade he wrote, it is both an encouragement for English politicians to abolish the slave trade and a personal confession. I hope it will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me. I was once an active instrument in a business which my heart now shudders. he wrote. Newton, a celebrated example today, stands out because he eventually repudiated slavery. If Newton had simply remained a slave trader, he would have been so typical. It is like no one would remember his name. Even after surviving the Middle Passage, Africans was only beginning to experience the horrors of slavery, Newton wrote. Ships usually landed in a port, end quote. This is Jamal Tisby. Ships usually landed at a port in the Caribbean, Barbados, or Antigua, for example. The slave ship captains did the best to sell their cargo as quickly as property. slaves were sometimes corralled into one pen so he says with all slaves corralled into one pen potential buyers were rushed into the pen grabbing as many slaves as they could afford in a chaotic spectacle of greed and brutality so uh, when you read this book or when you hear me quoting these brutal passages of the middle passage this is the key People always wanna quote and talk about the Jewish Holocaust and other genocides, other Holocaust. And you're gonna always hear me say that I believe that you are a true Christian. If you believe in the true Bible, every genocide should be spoken about equally. Nobody's genocide should be spoken more about than another person's genocide. Because when God says and told Moses thou shalt not kill when you have whole nations that have slaughtered each other for profit and for gain when you have a white nation that in their evilness felt the desire and they acted upon it to go and capture blacks just for the point of murder rape and building up America's economy that should be talked about and let me just say this there is a through line a starting point of black men or the black family's problems that starting point is slavery There can be no true conversation of race. And I'm going to keep saying this over and over again. There can be no true conversation of race and racial justice if slavery is not the foundation. Even when you want to deflect white people, even when black conservative pundits who love to be around Fox want to deflect. No one with common sense, which is not so common, can say slavery and those effects has not affected black people today at some form and at great levels. And I'm talking about the whole institution of slavery. The Middle Passage, the, the, the time in the islands the years of servitude in america the structure of the church how west africans who were fulani who were yorubians who were other african religions were forced by the whip and by rape to become believers in jesus christ you can't deny that when you look at the structure of the black church you look at the black neighborhoods you look at the, the holding black people in pens with the modern-day prison system in some cities where it's packed with black men to sometime five, six, seven in one sale as in Miami-Dade County, you have to ask yourself a question. Has the effects of slavery and racial injustice totally be done away with? And the answer is no. And I'm one who believes that if the church ever will find its collective voice against racial oppression, and speaking up about slavery, I'm one who believes that not all problems can be eradicated because people are definitely evil, people are definitely born horrible sinners, and that sinfulness people would do the most disgusting in acts however it can be put to a minute level when the church says we won't tolerate it anymore that's the problem I believe this if the church would speak out about racism speak out in a recollective thing of slavery And Jim Crow Civil rights As fervently as the church spoke about Homosexuality and abortion I think you would have a different Racial makeup of the church You even have a different Racial makeup of this country And I'm talking about emotional makeup Relationship makeup Those would be different If the church ever talks about Racism collectively The way it talks about homosexuality way it talks about abortion you will so have a different more loving society I believe I believe you will have a different more loving universe you have a different more loving church that would make the church who they're supposed to be that light that sits on top of a hill that is like shining to the world because I'm going to tell you something racism and the ongoing problems of black people in America and church is the Achilles heel of the Christian faith. Racism and the ongoing problem of black people and suffrage in this country is the church's Achilles heel. Well, I'm out. These are the first couple of chapters of The Color Compromise book review. I will be doing another episode Monday and Wednesday and Friday. Hopefully, I can be done within a week or two. And I'll move on to another book. Like I said, I think it's very important to stimulate your mind by books and by knowledge and by people who has written and studied and labor and who can teach and educate and convict and confirm and confront. And that's what I like to do with the books I read. And I like to share that with you. So, have a great weekend. Be good? Be breathing. This is Jermaine for another episode of the Kick It Straight Podcast.